Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. The first lesson this morning comes from the book of Genesis in the 12th chapter. Both of the readings today focus on the person and the story of Abraham and his descendants. This is a be- part of the beginning of that story. Let us listen that we may hear God's word to us. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord said to Abram, appeared to Abram, and he said, To you and your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading this morning comes from the gospel, I mean, from the book of Romans, um, from chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then 13 through 17. Let us listen that we may hear. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who but to one with, who without works trust him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. From the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who were to be heirs, faith is null and void, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." 
in the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, may any one of us not get in the way of you today. May you clear the path for your presence among us. Amen. Family trees are fascinating, at least I think they are. They tell us a lot about where we come from, and they fill in information about who we are and what we are about and who the people were that came before with our particular brand, our, our family, literally a biological family, but also a family of faith, a family of work, a family of school. There are connections that we see in our family trees. We enter into relationships in these descriptions. They are, they are full of, of possibilities, and they are also full of gaps, if truth be known. You look at a think about your own particular family, your parents, and then your grandparents, and then sometimes it gets kind of fuzzy. Who exactly were those folks that were back there for whatever reason that happens in our family lives? And then the further back we go, the, the more gaps there, there were. There are certain large events that happen in the world that define our lives, no matter who we are. My father graduated from high school in 1941. I don't think I have to tell you where he spent the, the next four years. I grew up in the Deep South in the era of the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War. That had an impact on me. My children were marked by growing up in the world after 9-11. All of us have these large markers that, that impact us, and at the same time, they are intersected by particular personal events that come into our own way. And we cannot um, live without acknowledging that. We want to have as much clarity on the world as we can find. We, we demand high-definition television screens, and we seek that in our life as well. The story of Abram from Genesis 12, whose name is later changed to Abraham, is one of those family tree stories that connects so many people. And actually, it connects us because we are descendants of that family of faith that began there. Through the story of the Old Testament prophets, through the story of and the, the wonder of of the coming of the Messiah and Jesus through the coming of the church, we're connected back to Abram. Before getting to this point in Genesis, though, there are 11 chapters. They are described by Bible students as the prehistory for that. That doesn't mean they didn't happen. It means that there's no written contemporaneous record of those happening. That's what history is. History requires you to have writing and being able to pass on documentation. Genesis 1 through 11 tell an unfolding story of creation and how 
humanity is connected in creation, how we are part of that, how God the Creator moved and drew forth the wonders of the world out of a void. Lots of things happened in that time. But until we get to Genesis 12, we really don't have documentation about that. From Genesis 12 on, though, the people, the places, and the events are referenced in different human documents, different archaeological evidences. The family tree begins to be fleshed out more. When I was in college, there was a religion professor who was an archaeologist, and he became, he was very particular in his approach to things, but he would get so excited when he was talking about the discovery of the place of I. I is mentioned in Genesis 12. It's the place between Bethel and where Abram set up a camp. And for many years, it was not known where that was, but in the 20th century, it was the location was discovered. It was a major archaeological find because it gave evidence to part of how that story unfolded to think that there was this family, this, this group of people that came through there, and that's where they were. Abram is part of a larger family, of course. His father is named as Terah at the end of Genesis 11. He has brothers, Nahor and Haran. Abram marries Sarai, and then his brother Nahor marries Milcah. Nahor and Milcah have children, but Abram and Sarah do not. Chapter 11, verse 30 of Genesis puts it quite bluntly. Sarai was barren. She did not have children. We think of that in terms of biological procreation, but there is also a way in which barrenness affects, can affect any person. It can be an emptiness or a longing or even a despair. That is not to diminish the issue with, child, with, with childlessness. It is simply to say there's a doorway to a larger commonplace in our humanity. How do we find our way when we are barren? What do we do when we have nothing that is coming forth in terms of life for us? This is the setting for this explosive story that, that begins in Genesis 12 when God says, the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and the people you have known. Leave, get up, move, get out of here. There is nothing left for you here. I want you to go to a land where there is promise. The King James Version puts it this way, get thee out of thy country. Vamoose, hit the road, Jack. All caps, leave. This is to put there to get our attention. Leave, God says, and I will show you the way. I will show you the place you are to go. Now, God did not say, leave where you are and come over here where I am. God said, go 
where I will show you. Where there is emptiness, where there is barrenness, go, move, step out of where you are. Oftentimes, when we are at a place of emptiness, the motivation to leave is not very great. We want to crawl back into our hole, as it were. But God commands Abram to leave. And then God gives Abram a promise. I will accompany you. I will go with you. It harkens back to that verse from Psalm 23, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow, we think the shadow of death, but it's also all sorts of other shadows. When you're walking through any shadow, any valley of shadow, the Lord accompanies. And not only will I accompany you, but I will make you a blessing. I will find a way so that you will bless those who come after you. Now, the story of Abram and Sarai and their progeny is quite remarkable when you look at Genesis 12 through 17. Because Abram and Sarai did a little bit of conniving. They did some planning. They got involved with this, but ultimately God provided the way forward. This is a story about moving from a place where there was no life, where there was no plan for future generations, to a place where there are descendants, where there are possibilities. But it is not simply about the number of children that are involved. It is also about the barrenness that happens when we find ourselves in a spiritually and emotionally empty place. It is about the agonizing loneliness where we may find ourselves. To find this way of promise requires accepting that imperative, get out of here. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, the whole of this tale about Abraham and Sarah is based on the seeming contradiction to stay in safety is to remain barren. To leave in risk is to have hope. To stay in safety is to remain barren. To leave in risk is to have hope. When we think of Jesus' words that he repeated, that are recorded in all four of the Gospels in some form or fashion, we re recall this refrain, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. To save your life, you lose it. To lose your life is to find it. There is a theme. Seeking self-preservation defeats hope. When you give yourself to God, you find something very different. Giving oneself over to God requires a pilgrimage. It requires a leaving of this place of emptiness. That does not mean necessarily living, leaving a physical place, but it means leaving that place in our life, wherever it may be. The Genesis word, the Genesis account does not use the word faith, but that is what 
is there, that very idea of having faith, of trusting, of providing assent and, and saying, yes, this is where I am. There are all sorts of very deep and profound religious experiences. But all of, so many of them come back to this place where God said to Abram, go from this place I have shown where you are to a place that I will show you. The promise that comes to us is repeated by Paul in Romans, in the letter to the Romans. Paul knew something about this being in a comfortable place and leaving to go to a new world, a new world of activity and, and identity. Paul, whose name was Saul originally, was convinced that he knew what God wanted. He was convinced that those who followed Jesus were wrong, and he committed his life to being able to root out that wrong thinking and that wrong doing. But on the way to do exactly that, he was transformed. He was converted, you might say. He was open to new possibilities. And as he lived his life, he changed his name from Saul to Paul. To follow in this way is to give ourselves over. It is an act of faith. Each one of us will experience faith in our lives differently. In the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrew Christians puts it this way, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. The, convic the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. The message translation renders it this way, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith is the firm foundation under which everything that makes life worth living, it's our handle on how we see, how, on what we can't see. It's our handle on what we can't see. This trust, this faith, this commitment makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we cannot see. Moreover, the writer to the Hebrew, of the Hebrew epistles declare that it was this faith, this action of hoping when things could not be seen that defined the ancestors in life. We are the spiritual heirs of that story. These are our people. This is our family. This is our tree from which we come. As we think about faith and journeying and hope that we have, we need to be careful, though, because faith and hope are not delusion, and we need to be clear about what separates those two things. We do not think anything in our life about getting in a plane, getting in an aluminum tube, 25 to 50 feet, 25 to 30 feet wide probably, sitting in very uncomfortable seats, and trusting that this heavier-than-air piece of equipment is going to rise in the sky and carry us miles away. We don't think anything about that. Well, maybe some of us do. I don't know. We don't think 
that there's this little gadget in our pocket that we can pull out, and by using it, we can talk to just about anybody else in the world, or we can find out information about anybody else in the world. But we trust that it works. We trust that the air molecules will respond and all the dynamics and the physics that happen when a plane lifts off will occur, not simply once, but time after time after time. We trust that this little gadget we hold in our hand will be able to help us stay in communication with other people. We know these things work. We trust they will happen. Faith is an extension of trust in a spiritual way. Faith requires us to have trust in our relationships. That is what is at stake here. We trust God, not simply because we hear a voice that says go. We trust God because we have a relationship with God, and not only with God, but with other people. Our relationship with God is transcendent. It comes down and intervenes in the world. And our relationship with each other is horizontal, for we are connected in very important and interesting and good ways together. Faith is an extension of that. It is a trust that this relationship with God and relationship with others will carry us forward in life. I have a, a friend named Steve. He's For many years, he was uh, in the Air Force, and then after he got out of the Air Force, he began working in a variety of volunteer mission activities, which led him to another career, not as a minister, but as a mission advocate. Steve was involved in many rebuilding projects that uh, were similar to Habitat for Humanity, and he would often quote Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity, when he spoke about the theology of the hammer. Fuller's use of that phrase was to describe that when we get together to meet human need, we are serving God in Jesus Christ, and we are changing the world around us. And Steve did a lot of that. One day, he was involved in a project to rehab a house, and it was scheduled over a number of weeks, and there were different phases in which it was uh, to happen. One particular day, they were to re-roof the house, but nobody in the volunteer crew knew anything about roofing, and they didn't have any other real technical expertise. They were lamenting this situation where they got to that point on the agenda of the day, and just about that time, a man walked onto the job site. He was apparently intoxicated, but he heard them talking, and he said, I know something about roofing, and I can help you out. And they said, yeah, thanks. And before they knew it, he climbed up on the roof, and he began stripping off the old, old shingles and preparing to lay down the new ones. And he began telling the crew that was there what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. And then when they were through with all of that, they were just amazed, scratching their heads. Where did this guy come from? What's going on here? And they came down, and they were expressing their appreciation and their 
talking about what was next, and they turned around, and he was gone. I don't know what you think of that story, but you don't know Steve, but I do. And I know that that is congruent with the kind of experience that he has had in many different places in many different times. And because of that, I trust that story. I trust, based on my relationship with him, that there is a word of goodness and truth and hope that is there. I have faith in my friend Steve, and because of that, I can bear witness to what he has done. What separates faith from delusion is the integrity of our relationships, our relationships with God and our relationships with each other. The framework of our, our family, the framework of the stories that we share are that we hear this word to go out into the world. We share a promise of life and we go forward together on a pilgrimage that takes us from a place of emptiness to a place of fruitfulness. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.